for you to write down. Let me catch you up to speed on where we're at so that you know where we're going. We're in a series, so if you're newer to Grace Church, like, what's that, right? We kind of have a conversation over four or five weeks. It's all one conversation. We kind of break it up. And so we've called this conversation, Do You Hear What I Hear? And the reason we called it that is this, is because this Christmas, all of us are hearing something right? Every last one of us in this room have some sort of predominant noise in our life. We all do. It just is what it is, right? Some of us, that predominant noise we've said each week has to do with our past, right? And so we have regret and shame, and I wish I hadn't have made this decision. And that's the noise you can't, can't seem to get out of your life right now. Or for some of you, and actually I've talked to some of you, even in this room, that noise has to do with right now, It has to do with the present. You're facing a mountain you didn't expect. You're having to walk through a door you didn't want to have to go through. And so right now, the noise of your life has everything to do with the present challenge of your life. And then for a lot of us, it has everything to do with the future, whether it's fear, anxiety, I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. Whatever the case may be, the holidays have a way of amplifying whatever that noise is in our life. And so we're simply asking this question, do you hear what I hear? Because... Here's the key. God wants to cut through the noise of your life. And the Christmas story, we said, has some very powerful and potent, and we have even said life-changing things that God wants to say to us this Christmas. Five very powerful, potent things. The Christmas story isn't just so we can celebrate once a year, set out a nativity scene, but he has some powerful things that he wants to say to you this Christmas, and he wants to literally cut through the noise of your life. And so we're in the third week of this. Week one, we said this, that God wants to scream this Christmas to you, to me, to all of us, I keep my promises. I always keep my promises. That's what God says. That Christmas story is all about a God who keeps his promises. And and, and that was significant because some of you have written back to me and said, I have only ever known the God of the no, right? And you didn't realize that God was the God of the yes. And Christmas tells us that in Christ, all of God's promises, and there's a ton, all of his promises are yes. He's the God of the yes. And so we looked at that first week. I always, always, always keep my promises. That's what God says through Christmas. Last week, we simply looked at some tough stuff, and we said this, that God says at Christmas, there's hope. There's hope, particularly in the waiting and the silent moments of my life. I don't know if I've preached a message where I've received more feedback and communication from people. I, I honestly, I've done this 25 years. And, and here's what it told me. Some of you are in a moment of silence in your life. Some of you are in a period of waiting. For some of you, you've written me in, in, in that moment of silence, that period of waiting is, is really dark. And there's a lot more questions than there are answers. And so we looked at last week that Christmas at a time like that tells us that God is saying there's hope. There's hope in the middle of the silence. There's hope in the middle of the waiting that I'm still listening, God says, and I'm still working, even though you may not feel it or know it. Today, here's what I look at. For a few minutes, we're going to look at this. I want you to write this down. God is saying this at Christmas. I want to help you. That's what he's saying. I want to help you. God at Christmas lets us know in a very unique way that he wants to help us. Now, it begs the question, okay, how does the Christmas story tell us that, right? How does the Christmas story tell us that God is saying, I want to help you? And I think it's a great question, and I think it's interesting that the Christmas story, think about this, starts with, if if you read the Christmas story, at somewhat the beginning of the Christmas story is what I would say is the original, you ready? Everybody listen. The original gender reveal and name reveal of a baby. Anybody notice that it's a new fad? It's a new fad that when somebody's expecting 
Not only are you interested in what they're going to name the baby, but it also has become faddish to have gender reveal parties. And raise your hand if you've ever been to one of those. Or, but yeah, okay, it's kind of a new fad. Uh, if you didn't know the young man who was up here kind of hosting today, that happens to be my son Joel, they're expecting their first baby. That means in a few days or weeks, I'm going to be a granddad for the first time. Raise your hand if you're a grand, grandparent in the room. I'm joining your club, right, in a, in a little bit, okay? And here's the deal. So this is our first go around with this whole thing. And so they had us over to their house, right? And they had this box out in the backyard and came a certain point in the meal when they said, hey, we're going to open the box. And out of the box flew a certain color of balloon. And that color of balloon told us what the gender of the baby was going to be, right? We didn't do that when my kids were coming around, can I just say? And so we found out that they're going to have a little fella, little boys coming, right? And going to be coming in a couple days or weeks or whatever it might be. I said, that's awesome. And then we asked the second question, right? You would ask it, I ask it, right? What are you going to name that little fella? And they won't tell us what they're going to name him, right? I said, listen, I got an idea, Festus, right? I've been waiting for a Festus, right? They won't tell us. When you get to the Christmas story, it's interesting because the angel says, I want to tell you what gender this baby's going to be, and I'm going to tell you what his name's going to be. Look what it says, Matthew 1, on the screens. Just look what it says. Angel says she's going to give birth to a son, gender reveal, original. It's not a new idea, right? And you are to give him the name Jesus. We talked about this last week. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. This is Isaiah. We talked about this last week. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him. Everybody say this out loud with me. Emmanuel. Why would you call a baby Emmanuel? It's like, what in the world is up with that? And he tells us, you're going to call him Emmanuel because Emmanuel means something. It's not just a cool name, right? Now we name babies like, hey, that just sounds like a cool name. It's kind of faddish. He says, I want you to name him Emmanuel. He's going to be called Emmanuel because it means literally God with us. God told Joseph at the original Christmas, you're going to have a son. And I want you to know what you're going to call that son. That son not only is going to be named Jesus, you're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Imagine that. Not, an, not a baby announcement that says, hey, cutest baby ever just arrived. But a baby announcement that says, hey, God just arrived in the form of this baby. There's something important. I want you to write it down. Some of you have heard it before and some of you maybe never have, but you need to write this down at Christmas. God became a man. At Christmas, God became a man. It, listen, if you've never heard that, you didn't know that, and you're not even sure if you believe that, I will tell you it is one of the most important things that you will ever hear at Christmas time. Hear about Mary and Joseph and Wiseman, and we hear about all that. Here's what you need to hear. At Christmas, God became a man. Now, now in, in churches, here's the word you, I want to explain something. Here's the word. Here's the big $50 word for that, incarnation. It, say, say with me out loud, ready? Incarnation, okay? If you want to write that down, you, you can write it down. It sounds like a big church word. It sounds like, man, that sounds like a Bible word. It's not. It's not. We, we make things too difficult. We, we, we look at words like, and I can't get that. I don't understand. It's like incarnation. It sounds like a word you'd say in church. No, no, no. We, we got to put some, we, we got to bring it down and understand it. It's not some big church word. I'll tell you how I know that. I grew up going to public school. How many went to public school growing up, right? So I ate lunch in the cafeteria, right? And so when I was a little kid, you always used to look at the menu. 
right? Because I want to see what they're going to have. I grew up in the mountains, so we didn't have a lot of variety. It seemed like every week we had this one meal, and I liked it, right? But, but I didn't understand why they called it what they called it, right? Because we had this meal, and here's how it was described. Uh, today, kids, you're going to have chili. Okay, that's what we called it in my house, but they called it chili con carne. And I remember as a little kid, like, well, I don't know why they call it that. You know, it didn't make any sense to me, right? Now, like at my house, my mom said, hey, Dan, we're going to have chili. Cool. At school, we call it chili con carne. One day as I got older, I'm like, why do we call this chili con carne? Because chili con carne, the words actually mean chili what? With meat. Listen to me. Christmas is all about God showing up and putting meat on the bones. It's God in the flesh. I will tell you something. For some of you, that's the first time you've heard it, and it's the most important thing you're going to hear this Christmas. For others of you, unfortunately, you grew up in church, and it hasn't somehow leaned into your life in a way that startles you. What I just said ought to startle you. God, at Christmas, became a man. He showed up on the stage of human history in flesh. Listen close. The infinite God became an infant. The maker of everything we see, oh, by the way, and that we don't see and are trying to discover, the maker was the one lying in the manger. The divine deity that we worship showed up and wore diapers. God put on skin and wrapped himself in flesh. Preacher friend that I met out west, like to say it this way, it's easy to remember. Christmas is all about God in a bod. I love it, right? Easy to remember. You see, that's what the incarnation means, and that is part of the Christmas story. And so I want to tell you something about the Christmas story. That there, There's a little teacher in me. I used to teach New Testament. I want you to get this, okay? So if you'll bear with me. But when you get to your Bible, it's split into two parts. Everybody with me? It's split into two parts. We have the Old Testament, and the second part is called the what? New Testament, okay, you're, you're with me, okay? And here's the thing, the first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you get there, that's where you read the familiar uh, understanding of the Christmas story. And a lot of people read the Gospels and like, hey man, you know, there's a lot of things that are similar and there's some things that are different. Why is this, that, and why is this the same and that's not the same? Listen to me, everybody listen. I want your Bible to come alive to you. If I die and your Bible comes alive to you, I'm like, yes! Here's the deal. You're the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why is there some things the same and why is there some things different? Listen, listen close. Because they had different audiences they were writing to. This is key to understanding your Bible. So when you read Matthew, you read the Christmas story, you read some different things. When you read Matthew, he takes Jesus' genealogy and he drives it back to Abraham. Why does he do that? Because Matthew is writing to Jews. He's writing to Jews after their 9-11 moment, by the way. The temple was destroyed and he wants to make sure they understand. That's him. He was it. And so he wants them to know, yes, Jesus is the one promised through Abraham. Why does Matthew talk about the wise men? I don't know. He thought that was a cool part of the story. No, because the wise men were looking for the king of the Jews. So Matthew's writing to Jews. And so when you read his story, it's like, oh, yeah, he's writing to Jews. That's why he's bringing this out. Mark, when you get to Mark, you're like, Mark must not have liked Christmas, right? Because there's no Christmas story. He's like a big Grinch. Is he a Scrooge? What's wrong with Mark? No Christmas story. Listen, Mark's writing to Romans. 
He's writing to Roman people. They don't really care about all this genealogy stuff the Jews cared about. And so what Mark focuses on are things that Roman people needed to hear in order to understand for Jesus to make sense. When you get to Luke, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus and in general to a bunch of Greek people. And so when you read his Christmas story, he takes Jesus' genealogy and the origin of Jesus, not back to Abraham. This is so awesome. He takes it clear back to Adam. Why? Because he wants these Greek people that are like, I'm not a Jew. I don't really care about that. He wants them to, no, no, Jesus is the savior of the world, even fringe people. So that's why, hey, I want you to know these shepherds that were outcasts to the Jewish community. Hey, they were invited in on the scene. When you get to John, listen close. Everybody look this way. I want you to get this. John's writing to both Jews and Greeks. You're like, why is that important? Because to a Jew, listen close. To a Jew, what matters most, if you want to tell a Jew, here's what I know and here's what's true, here's what you do. You show them. You show them. It's all in what you do. A Jew measures truth and knowledge by what someone does. A Greek, you want to tell them what is true and what you know, they want to hear what you have to say. A Jew wants to see what you're going to do. A Greek is going to want to hear what you have to say. When you get to John... The book of John is literally God through Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. I am the living bread. I am the living water. I am the way. All these things Jesus says, why? Because those Greek people are like, who did he say he was? And all intermixed throughout what Jesus said, John says, and here's what Jesus did. And the book of John literally revolves around seven miraculous signs that Jesus performed. And that's why John, listen close, when you read John, has the most, ready, unique Christmas story of all the Gospels. Because he doesn't focus on shepherds or wise men or any of that stuff. He gives us the story from heaven's perspective. So when you get to John chapter 1, you see the Christmas story. It sounds different than maybe you heard it. Here's John's Christmas story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Stay with me. I don't want you to get lost here. And the word was God. Can we just make this observation? The word was God. You guys with me? Word was God. That's going to be key. He, who's he? The word that was God, was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Through who? The word that was God in the beginning. He made everything. He's the creator. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him, that's the word that was God, was life. That life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He goes on to say, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's his Christmas story. This true light that was the word that was God is coming. And when he got here, though the world was made through him, creator showed up, world was made through him, world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. They rejected him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, we call it this, said yes to Jesus. He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And then this is powerful. The word, everybody look here, which word? The word that was with God in the beginning, the word that was God became flesh. That's incarnation. That's God with flesh. 
and he made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, glory of one and only Son who comes from the Father, and he's full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him, cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about. Now this is confusing. He who comes after me is actually surpassed me because he was before me. John knew something that Jesus didn't start in Bethlehem. Why? Because he was God. He just wrapped himself in skin at Christmas. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God. Can't be plainer than that. And is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This is John's Christmas story. And what John wants us to get is this. This is the incarnation that when When we hear the first Christmas story, God wrapped himself in skin. It's God with meat on, so to speak. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that truth, everybody listen, that truth is God saying, I want to help you. And it begs this question, how's God want to help me and how's that show me? That four things, I'm glad you asked. Four things, I want you to write them down. And the first one's found in the last verse I read. In the last verse I read, verse 18, it says this, no one has ever seen God. Everybody look here a second. I hear this all the time. I wish I could see God. Anybody ever feel that way? Just raise your hand and be honest. Like I, just, I had a lady come in this last week and say, this would be so much easier if I could just see God. And what's interesting in verse 18, no one's ever seen God. Look at this. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. I want to teach you something here. That little phrase that we have in yellow up there on the screen it's, it comes from the Greek word, we get this word exegete. You're like, that doesn't help me, Dan. Can you explain further, right? And that word exegete, by the way, that's what pastors do, or ought to do. Pastors exegete, that means you take truth out of the Word of God and explain it. A preacher who comes to the Word of God and puts in it his own opinion, careful, you take truth out, that's what exegete means. It means to explain, reveal, communicate, describe. Here's what he's saying. That God wants to help us and Christmas shows me that because Jesus explains God to me. Like, what's God look like? Look at Jesus. In fact, I would add this word. Jesus perfectly explains God to me. He is the perfect explanation of God. Why is that important? Why, you know why that's important? Because there is a lot of confusion, I would even guess, in this room about what God is like. I talk to tons of people, and there is a lot of confusion in our culture about what God is like. Here's why there's confusion. There is a lot of people who their idea, when I say God, there's a guy named A.W. Tozer who said the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think of God. And for some of you, when you think of God, the very thing that comes to your mind is what other people have told you. And so when I say God, the very thing that comes to your mind is what you've been told. And for some of you, the thing that comes to your mind immediately is this drill sergeant God because your granny told you or whatever. It's like God's mad and he's angry and he's looking, he's going to get you. And he's just screaming at you. That's what comes to your mind. For others of you, he's kind of like this cosmic Santa Claus, right? He knows when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows whether you've been naughty, he knows whether you've been nice, and so you want to be nice because you want him to bring you something good, right? So he's this cosmic Santa Claus. 
For others of you, he's this revered old man kind of rocking in a chair because your daddy or somebody, when they would talk about God, they say, hey, the big guy upstairs, yeah, yeah, we're tight, you know, it's like he's my heavenly buddy and all that. And so that's what you think about when you think about a lot of confusion when you think about God. And so a lot of people in our culture, that's what they think. But most people, listen, listen, this, this might hurt. Most people, the confusion isn't because what comes to their mind is what other people have taught them. But a lot of us, ready? Let's just be honest. A lot of us, here's where the struggle comes. When we think of God, the confusion comes because we've created a God in our own image. You're saying, help me understand that, Dan. I will. There's a professor out west. His name is Scott McKnight. And he gives a test to his class first day there at school. And the test goes like this. I want you to describe, there's like 10, 15 questions. I don't know how many are on there. But, but I want you to describe God. How do you think God would feel about this? How do you think God would vote on this? What do you think God would say about this? How do you think, and, and they, they fill in like, I think God is this, and I think God is that, and God would this. And then he teaches his first class. And then at the end of the class, he takes that test and he's rearranged the wording and the sequence of the questions. But he basically asked the very same questions. And he said, hey, what I want you to do is end this class period by answering these questions. But I want you to answer them for yourself. And so the class begins to answer, how would you vote about this? And they fill in the answer. How would you describe this? And they answer. How do you feel about this? And they answer. And he puts the two tests together. And you know what he found? He found that the two tests were answered exactly the same, that most people who take the test feel like God is exactly like them, just a little nicer. And the truth is we live in a culture that way. God must be like me. He must feel the way I do. He must vote the way I would. He must do what I would do. God's just like me. He's a little bit nicer, but he's pretty much like me, and there's a lot of confusion. And Jesus said, I'll clear the confusion. I'll clear that up. I am the perfect explanation of God. Hebrews says it this way. In the past, God spoke through prophets at many times, various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he has also made the universe. Here's the key. The son, by the way, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus was fully God, fully human, that's the incarnation. He's saying, I want to help you. I want you to know what God is like. So it begs the question, what's God like? Well, you have your Bibles open to John 1. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. Word was God. So what was God like when he showed up? Verse 14. The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Read this out loud with me, everybody all together. Full of grace and truth. When God showed up, he was full of grace and truth. Everybody listen. When God showed up, he surprised people. I think if God showed up in this room, he might surprise some of us. Because the truth of the matter is when God showed up, he befriended sinners and he corrected the religious. The people in the story you think should have been afraid of him ended up being his friends. And the people in the story you thought would be his friends, they ended up killing him. You see, when God showed up and put skin on, 
He was full of grace and truth. And that tells me something. Please hear everything I'm getting ready to say, not just parts of it. It means I don't need to be afraid of God because of my sin. Listen, not done. But I better be careful not to think I can relate to God out of my hypocrisy and the deception of my morality and religiosity. God shows me that when he shows up. The more I step into the light of his truth, the more I can experience the healing of his grace. I'm going to say that again, worth writing down. The more I step into the light of his truth, he's full of truth, the more I can experience the healing of his grace. It's key. You know that. You know that just practically. You know that because you go to a doctor. And a doctor helps us understand that. Like, like I've been going to a doctor, right? So I'm going to fully disclose. I'm tired of answering some questions. I have some people say, hey, how you feeling? Listen, I'm getting older. And, and, and give me an amen on this. When you get older, there's things that hurt you didn't even know you had. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? So I'm just going to say it, right? All pride gone. I'm, there's things. Hurt. So some of you have caught me limping once in a while. Yeah, once in a while I limp, okay? What's the problem with it? No, I, but, but I limp. And I try to hide it. But for a couple of years, I've had this major pain in my hip, okay? And I've gone to a doctor. When I went the first time, he's like, he did these little whoopies, exercises. like, man, I'm not sure. He said, hey, I think I got, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give you a cortisone shot. I'm like, all right. So he brings out a big old needle, I'm boop. I'm like, all right, see how that works. And maybe I won't have to see you again. That worked for a minute, you know? I went back the next year. I'm like, doctor, my hip hurts. And he's like, ah, we'll try this cortisone shot again. I'm like, all right, you know? So boom, hit it again. It's like, how'd that work? Like, it didn't. My hip hurts, right? And this is what he said to me. He said, hey, Dan. He said, I can't help you unless I can see what's wrong. Stay with me on this example. He said, we got to put that hip under the light of an MRI. Raise your hand if you've had an MRI. We need to form a club. Because if you haven't had an MRI, I'm going to spoil it for you. I absolutely hate having an MRI. Raise your hand if you hate having an MRI. I hate it because they put you in this room and they say, it ain't going to be no problem. Don't worry. Relax. Yeah, right. They put you in this tube. You feel like a hot dog in there, right? And they said, don't think about the fact that that top of that tube is right about that far from your nose. And then they put these earbuds in and say, what do you want to listen to? I don't know. And you give them a a selection that you want to listen to. You can't hear it anyways because all you hear is jackhammers. (laughs) Just like that the whole time you're in there. (laughs) Don't worry, you know? Good luck if you're going to have an MRI. I'll pray for you. So I went and had an MRI. They stuck me in there, and they pulled me out. Three days later, my doctor calls me. He said, hey, no wonder cortisone's not working. He said, I see what the problem is. Basically, I got two major tears going on in there. I had two questions for my doctor. I said, what caused it? He said, old age is what he said. I'm like, shut up, that's what I said, right? No, I didn't say it. Then I had the second question. If you're me, you'd have this question. I said, now that we know what it is, he said it, what are we going to do? Imagine imagine how crazy it had been. My doctor said, hey, you got some major tears in there. Have a great Christmas. Talk to you later. Boom, right? A lot of truth. No healing grace. 
I want you to remember this. When Jesus came, I hear people say, you know, he hung out with sinners. Did he just like sinners better? No, 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 no. You got the wrong idea of Jesus. Why did he always hang out with sinners? You know why? Because they were people who just were living in the light of his truth, and so therefore they could experience his grace. Why was it the religious people didn't like Jesus? Because they were hiding. Stay with me. Some of us are here. They're hiding in the shadows of religiosity. And it's only when I step into the light of his truth that I'll ever experience the healing of his grace. That's God. That's God. And when Jesus showed up, he said, I won't explain God to you. He's not some wimpy God. Grace isn't about no truth. But truth isn't about no grace. He's, boom, I'm going to come together on this thing. Because I want you to experience the healing of my grace. That's not all. He helps me understand God, but there's something else that's, that's, that's really, really cool. It's found in verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's interesting, right? Now, now you read that, and, and those words in yellow are benign to us. Like, what's that mean? Here's, here's literally what those words mean, and, and you can write this in your Bible, but literally it means he tabernacled among us. You're like, okay, that doesn't help me, Dan. Then write this word, he tent camped with us. Raise your hand if you're a tent camper. I want to see who I'm talking to. Are any tent campers? God bless you. Wow, more of you than I thought, right? Uh, tent camping is interesting. You know something about tent camping, right? Uh, I remember the first time I went tent, tent camping with my wife. We did it at the wrong time. So I'll give you a hint if you're thinking about doing it. We waited till we had kids and our kids were little. Some of them were still in diapers. We said, hey, here's a good idea. Let's go live in a tent for a week, right? Bad idea, okay? We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know how to put the tent up because here's what tent camping is all about. Stay with me. It's going to make sense in a minute. Tent camping is meant to be temporary. Can I get an amen on that? I couldn't wait to get home after that week. And you can count on this. When you go tent camping, the weather is not going to cooperate. Can I get an amen on that? Why does that matter? Because when the Bible talks about our bodies, the body you have, it calls it a tent. Our bodies are tents. They're the temporary vehicle that he gives us to live in in this temporary life. 2 Corinthians 5, check me on it. These tents that we have. When, 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 when somebody is laying in a casket, they're dead, they're gone, that's their tent laying there. That's their tent. And, and, and so they're, they're temporary, and for some of us, our life is all about inclement weather. It's like, it seems to rain all the time. What's going on? It's temporary, you only take what you need for the journey. That's what tent camping's all about. What is... What does that have to do with Christmas? Because when Jesus showed up, he came tent camping with us. He put on a tent. He had a body. And it means that he lived in his tent and experienced what tent campers experience. Listen, this is so powerful. It means we have a God who's available and he's experienced. He's available and he's experienced. And it helps me. Why? Because Jesus experienced life just like me. That's what Christmas tells me. That's the incarnation. That's God in a pod. Jesus is God who experienced life just like me. And it helps me because of what Hebrews says. It says, therefore, we have a great high priest descended into heaven, and that's Jesus. So because we do, hold firmly to the faith we profess. Why? Because we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he didn't sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. That's an interesting, picturesque way to say, let's pray with confidence. Why? So that we may receive mercy 
and find grace, there's our words, to help us in our time of need. You see, the incarnation is all about God showing up with skin, and I can go into God's throne room with confidence because there I have a God who has experienced life like me. Don't make this too hard. I honestly think sometimes when people get to the Bible, they they make it too hard. You know when you're with two people that have had similar experiences, how it connects them, you know? Two guys that have both been in the war, and they start talking, and all of a sudden, oh, wow, they understand each other. In fact, uh, one, one moment that comes to my mind, I shared it in the first service here. How many of you have been following the George H.W. Bush funeral and all that? Uh, if, if you haven't, you, you ought to. What an, I mean, I do it, no matter what you think politically, what, what party, you're, that's, that stuff doesn't matter. I love watching uh, leaders and kind of studying their life. And, and when they pass, you get a, a peek behind the curtain in a different kind of way. And what an incredible man of grace. I mean, this, this guy was an incredible man of grace and strong leadership. But, but all of that aside, the, one of the most powerful moments in all the funeral proceedings and all that to me, whether it was to you or not, to me, there was many, by the way, was the moment, and some of you won't even know this name and some of you will, when his casket was lying in state in the Capitol building. And they rolled up to the casket a man whose name happened to be Bob Dole. Raise your hand if you know that, you heard that name. Yeah former senator, he was a presidential candidate, and he was a war veteran like George Bush. And they actually at one time were political rivals. And they wheeled him up. I didn't even recognize him at first. I'm like, wow, he's aged. It's incredible. And he cannot stand on his own. And some young guy got behind him and lifted him. If you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. Lifted him to his feet and held him there. And as he feebly brought his arm, he saluted this man. And you knew that those two men understood each other in a unique way. You knew that they had been in war together. They had been in war with each other and even against. They understood each other. In Jesus, we have a God who understands, and it gives me confidence in approaching God with my stuff. I got stuff. By the way, you do too, right? And I have confidence when I do that there is a God who isn't just available. I'll listen to you anytime, but he understands. He's sympathetic. Might I even say empathetic, and he's understanding. He knows what it's like to be hurt and hungry and harassed. He knows the emptiness of loneliness. He has smelled the death. He's been there when a close friend has gone. We have a God who knows what it's like to be broken in his spirit and crushed in his soul. We have a God who understands. He says, I want to help you, and I want you to run to me, and and I've experienced life. He said, I'll explain God to you. Just look at Jesus. What's God like? Full of grace and truth. Look at Jesus. I need help. Things are hard. Listen, there is a God who lived in this tent, and I know what it's like to tent camp. Come to me. There's another way. And it's found in verse 16. I want you to see it. I really do want you to see it. This is so important. You, you don't hear anything else I'm saying today. If you'll do me this favor for the next seven minutes, just, just dial in. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. If you like to write in your Bibles, I recommend you do just grace on top of grace is what I would write in the side of your Bible there. For the law was given through Moses. You know that, Ten Commandments, all that. That's Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Through Christ, he says, I want to help you. 
He didn't simply come to explain God to me and to experience life with me. He came to give me grace on top of grace. What is grace? What, what does grace mean? It means, here's what grace means. If you, you're like, what is grace? Just name of the church? No. Grace means he took what I deserved so I could receive what I don't deserve. That's grace. Jesus took what I deserved so that I could receive what I don't deserve. He's saying, how did he do that? I'm glad you asked. Hebrews tells me. Since children, we all have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who live their lives held in this slavery by the fear of dying. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants that he helps. For this reason, he's been made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make, uh uh-oh, there's a big word, there's a church word, atonement for the sins of the people. What does that mean? Everybody look here, I want to explain this to you. Jewish people understand, like, atonement, bam. Day of atonement, bam. Yom Kippur, heard that? Bam. What is that? One day a year, high priest for the sins of the people, foreshadowing the promise of God. Here's what he would do. He would go into the Holy of Holies. There'd be two animals involved. Let's just say a lamb and a goat. Let's just say for today, lamb and a goat. And the high priest for the sins of the people would have sacrificed the life of that lamb. Blood, all, yes, everything you can imagine. Sacrifice, like, oh my goodness, it reminds me of the, the depth of sin right, was sacrificed that lamb for the sake of the sin of the people. And then that high priest would have placed his hands on that goat called a scapegoat and would have pronounced, confessed all the sins of the people. And they would have let that goat go in the wilderness, just symbolic to represent that when we're forgiven by God, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Listen, listen. When Jesus came, he became our atonement. No need for lambs and goats anymore. That God literally placed on him our sin. And Jesus exchanged places with me. He took my sin on him. He died in place of me. He took what I deserve. He made atonement for my sins. It's what makes what John says later in the book of John pop. John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, what did he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to say some important things. I want you to lean in. God became a man so he could save me from my sin. Listen, I don't have to to be afraid of dying in my sin because Jesus died for my sin. He was forsaken, I can be forgiven. He was punished so I could be pardoned. He absorbed my guilt so I could receive his grace. I need everybody to look here a second. I just want to talk, quit preaching for a second. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I've never been more serious than I'm going to be right now. I've been a pastor for 25 years. One of the most agonizing things 
that sometimes I have the opportunity to do is to be with families when somebody dies. I want to share some news with every last one of you in this room. I want you all to listen, okay? It's my Christmas greeting to you. You all are going to die. Merry Christmas. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're going to die. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Wow. They're like, thank you. But I got good news. I got good news. As far as I can tell, y'all still alive. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're still alive. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Listen, if you turn to your neighbor and got nothing, raise your hand, we'll bring security, okay? I mean, I don't know what's going on. Here's the deal. You're still alive. You're still alive. And I got to talk to you about something. I want you to listen really close. Okay? Because when, when you're dead and gone, I can't have this conversation with you. I can right now. And, and I'm afraid some of you are going to tune me out. Don't. Because I do all kinds of funerals, and the most agonizing ones I do go like this. Oh, I'm sad they're gone, but I'm sure they're in heaven. Really? That's awesome, I'll say. Hey, tell me why you say that. They were a really good person. They went to church all the time. They knew the Bible. I'm sure they're in heaven. They're probably watching over me. There's nowhere in the Bible where it necessarily says that, by the way. (laughs) I'm sure they're watching out over me because their family was just, oh. And nowhere in the Bible does it say any of those things. Well, assure me of heaven. And family members just grasping, saying, I hope they're in heaven. They were good, and certainly, and here's the thing. Would you guys do me a favor? Would you do me a favor? You're alive right now. I might have the, the opportunity to preach your funeral. And I don't want to preach, or none of the pastors here want to preach a funeral. It's like, oh my goodness. They were banking on their goodness. Ain't none of us good enough. They were banking on being in church. Being in church won't make you any, a Christian any more than sitting in a garage will make you a car. Honest to goodness. It just doesn't. He is clear. The only thing that will ever save me from, listen close, ever save me from my sin and assure me heaven is my home when I die is saying yes to the one who took my place at the cross. That's Jesus. You're like, how can I know for sure heaven's my home? The only way God gives us is say yes to Jesus as my Savior, as my Lord. And I'm looking at you right now because you're alive. I have people, church people, church people come into my office and say, I hope I make it. Make it where? I hope I make it into heaven when that day comes for me. Same guy, John, in 1 John says, I'm writing these things so that you can know. You can know. I preached my own daddy's funeral. And I was sad like any son would be. But I was celebrating. You know why? Because my dad, even though he was gone from my life, he was better than he had ever been. His hip didn't hurt. Amen? <laughs> I knew. He knew. He said yes to Jesus. It wasn't about his goodness. He knew there wasn't a lot of goodness there, not a lot of goodness here. 
There's a lot of good in the one who took my place, and that's Jesus. And he died for your sins so that you wouldn't have to live being afraid of dying. I might die in my sin. Say yes to Jesus. That covers it. He is the atonement. If you've never done that, if you've never done that, that is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life, and you can do it today. He says, I want to help you. You can live knowing the rest of your life. And he doesn't just save you from your sin, but... But John tells me he invites me into his family. Look what he says. He says, To all those who receive him, to those who believed in his name, look at yellow, he gave the right to become the children of God. Listen, listen, listen. He died on my tree so I could be invited to his table. Love that. His invitation to you this Christmas, say, hey, pull up a chair. Say yes to Jesus, the one who died in your place. How much God loves you this morning. Jesus explains God to me. He experiences life like me. He exchanged places with me. But there's one more thing. One more thing. And I'm going to invite the band to go out and go ahead and come on out and get set up. And I want, but, but don't put your stuff away. Because this thing's important. When you read on in the book of John chapter 1, there's something interesting. Verse 43, it says, Jesus, grown up Jesus decided to leave for Galilee and finding Philip, this is what he said. He said, follow me. You're like, that's interesting. Why did he say that? Because John, on purpose, wrote his gospel to let us know, listen close, guys, what Jesus said, but not just what Jesus said, what Jesus did. Why is that important? Because John wrote later, if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we're in him Whoever claims to live in him, look at this, must live as Jesus did. Guys, don't make this too complicated. I love the fact that Jesus left us a visual. He left us a visual. And his call is follow me. I don't live like Jesus lived in order to be accepted by God. Listen close. I live the way Jesus lived because I am accepted by God in Christ. I'm not saved by living the way Jesus lived. I live the way Jesus lived because I'm saved. Here's what you need to hear me say. I want you to hear me say this. This helps me because the one who said, love your neighbor, that guy, ah, that's hard to do. We talked about it a few months ago. Love your neighbor is the same guy who loved his neighbors to death. The same guy who said, pray for the people who persecute you, love your enemies and forgive others, is the same guy who on the cross begged God to forgive his murderers. The same one who said, take up your cross and follow me. It's the same one who took up his cross and died in my place. Christmas isn't about just a mantelpiece full of shepherds and wise men. And that's a cute story. It's about God putting skin on. He says, I want to help you. I want you to know what I'm like. You can run into my presence I've experienced life. 
And if you've never said yes to me, I'm the one who exchanged places with you. And you can live the rest of your life with no fear of dying. And once you've said yes to Jesus, the call on your life is not just do what I say, but follow me. Live as I lived. So, Father, across this room, I want to pray for my friends. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're going to just sing a song and be done. And I'd love nobody to leave during the song, if possible. If, if at all possible, I'd love for you to stay put. Because some of you this morning have never said yes to Jesus, ever. And you're hoping you're going to be good enough. And, and you're like, I hope when I die, he's okay with me. And he says, no, don't wait for that day. You can know today. It's not about how good you are, how often you go to church. It's about whether or not you've trusted the one who died in your place. Right there in your seat, you can say, yes, Jesus, I believe you love me, that you died on the cross for me, and that is the only way for me to be saved from my sins, and I want the hope of knowing heaven is my home. And you can say that right now, today, while you're alive. If you prayed that prayer today, I'd love to hear from you somehow. There's a whole bunch of you in this room that have prayed that and you're a follower of Christ. And you have this conjured up idea of what God's like. And Jesus said, no, no, look at me, full of grace and truth. Come out of the shadows of your religiosity and and, and even your morality and come into the truth that's where you can begin to experience grace. Some of you are facing a challenge. You're like, wow, this tent camping gig is hard. And, and, and Christmas is God saying, come to me in prayer. I've experienced life just like you. I want to help you. Some of you are followers of Christ. Like, I'm not sure what to do. And Jesus says, follow me. I don't know. Follow me. Well, I'm not sure. Follow me. God, I pray as this Christmas we lean into the God-made flesh that you would help us.